this chap on the boat had the idea of doing a ski jump over the back of a bloody hippo. In Saudi Arabia, I was on trial, and I didn't know I was on trial until it was over. I'm the only voice on the entire British radio or TV media that's giving my argument that the whole CO2 thing is a sham. The whole CO2 argument is a sham. I'm the only voice. They've got to restrict food because food gives off CO2. You know, I'm basically, yes? Yes, yeah, so they get rid of uh, the fertilizer and then they control the market. Yeah. Uh, 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 and so all the farmers have to stop. And, and what really gets to me is, is the hypocrisy of what they're doing. Hundreds, uh, in, in, when I was in Edinburgh, COP, over 400 jets, an Antifar family. And they surrounded me, about 30 or 40 Antifar. Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. You know, and hold on, I'm on climate change, yeah? And so... And, and Everyone's so, a Nazi. My wife had left me, by the way, uh, and this one. And, and run off with a young man. And um, um, I'd already learned um, that I'd been told there was a price on the head of 20,000 quid by her. Information covered up, censorship, corruption. The mainstream media have proven itself to be untrustworthy. I'm here to give a platform for debate, for truth, for open discussion. I'm introducing you to my podcast, Silenced, with Tommy Robinson. Who exactly is Tommy Robinson? Or Stephen Yaxley-Lenn? With the English Defence League, The problem is with Islamic race. The English far-right Islamophobic activists. Since then, there's been organised protests across the country in London, Manchester, Leeds. People in their thousands are marching for the There is no such thing in this country as a Muslim... Free Tommy Robinson! Paul Burgess is a retired chartered water resources engineer who was in charge of water resource planning for large sections of the UK and sat on national UK committees. He built the first mathematical model of the climate back in 1971. Retiring early from the water industry, Paul set up his own business. In the early 2000s, Paul became aware of the growing corruption of science by the climate alarmists and then started making videos to counter the alarmism. He now has over 80 videos on the subject, give talks all over the UK and regularly features on GB News, all in order to further the cause he feels so passionate about. A varied and interesting life is an understatement as Paul has faced death threats, bomb plots and travelled the world by boat, witnessing different cultures and creeds. It is my pleasure to welcome him to my podcast. Welcome to my latest edition of Silence, my podcast, where I'm joined with my latest guest. Everyone who I spoke about before I come here, when I was talking about the guest, they said, Oh, the climate change guy. So he's become known as the climate change guy. But I've known Paul Burgess for many years, and I know there's a hell of a lot more to his life story and his knowledge than being the climate change guy. So I want to sit down with him and hear about his life. So Paul, how do you do? Thank you for joining me. Yeah. We'll get on to, I think the main part is, I know there's assassination attempts on your life. There's been documentaries made about it. Yeah. So, Bob, just first of all, start, Paul, because um, you're now known as climate change guy, but where did you grow up? Liverpool. In Liverpool? I grew up in Notty Ash, Ken Dodd's uh, area. I used to deliver groceries to his mum's house. That was my bit of fame back in when I, when I was a kid at school. I used to work a lot of jobs after school. How long, did, how long did you live in Liverpool? You lost your accent. I lost my accent a long time ago, not intentionally. What a bonus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I lived in Liverpool. I left school uh, 
I, I became homeless in Liverpool, actually. But I, I left school when I was 18 in Liverpool with my A-levels. But uh, on the run-up to that, I, um, I really was living in a cosseted working-class life. I didn't even know universities, what they did, what they, you know, I knew nothing, really. And um, even my business acumen wasn't good then because I was walking down Castle Street with my cousin in Liverpool. That's by the cavern, by the way, yeah. uh, near to the cavern. And uh, the Beatles were coming towards me. The Beatles? The Beatles. Yeah. Okay. This is before they were famous. And they were knocking each other about in leather jackets and they had this funny haircut. And uh, I said, well, cross the street to avoid this. So she said, they're the Beatles. I said, yeah, I know, but you know, they're just a local group. So I said, they'll never, ever be famous, you know. And she said, my, my sister, my cousin's name was Pauline. And she said, they will be. I said, never, never, ever will they be famous. So I, I, I sometimes would like to go back in life <laughs> and approach them. <laughs> so um, I, I've had a very Forrest Gump sort of life. I really have. But, but So in Liverpool, um, yeah, I, I sort of, I don't know. It, it was like struggling out a, a world of ignorance where... Uh, I was told you have to be a worker, then you become a foreman, and so on. I, I, I didn't understand how life worked, but I uh, I, I got in I got in to, to study. Um, I did okay my levels. I was made homeless um, before that. Uh, well, I, well my mother ran off with a man and um, left me with um, a person I thought was my father. And I came home from school, and there was only two eggs in the house. That's all there was. That's all I had for the whole day. So I cooked them, and when he, when he got in, he said, you've cooked the eggs, and I said, yeah, and he said, get out, and he chucked me out. What, what age was this? About 14, <coughs> 15. When you was 14, so your mum just left? She left, yeah, and that, I associated with mum, mum, there's a whole story behind that, um, but what happened then was, um, I had to, I was on, well, I stayed <coughs> with an uncle for a little while, and I can say it now because these people are dead, but I came home early once, and his wife was upstairs with someone, which didn't go down too well, me being there. I didn't say anything to anyone, but she made sure I went. And um, so I then stayed with a girlfriend, I had a little girlfriend at then, and I stayed with her for a few weeks. In the end, the school, I was missing school, and the school found out, and they helped me with um, a little family near to the school. And like then my mum paid, like paid a couple of quid a week and in those days, and they kept me till I got through my A-levels and so on. Yeah. And, um, but then... Uh, um, I always wondered, especially later on when I had children, how could my father do that to me, right? And, and your mother. And my mother, yeah, but my mother I, I had an association with early on. And um, my mother in her world, who left school at 14, my mother in her world, because I was that sort of age, uh, thought that I could cope. You're an adult. The, the, the real problem was to emerge many years later, which solved the mystery of why I was chucked out. Which was? Which was, I was a war baby. I was a, I was a bastard. <laughs> I was a bastard even then, Tommy. And I didn't know it. And, um, oh, so the person you thought were your father, you then found out wasn't your father when your mum left? No, I found oh. out when I was 44, many years later. Oh, wow. And um, so um, what happened was, I'll skip ahead because I'm going to miss out a few years now. Yep. I, I was 44 and my mother uh, and my stepfather, who she went with, who's a good man, they, they worked for me actually in the factories and things I had. And um, she asked to see me on the way home. Uh, I called in, how are you doing, Mum? She said, she said, Tom Burgess is dead. And I, I said, oh, crikey, it's my father, yeah? yeah. I hadn't seen him since I was a kid. And, uh, and she said, but he's not your dad. And I'd found out then my sister, who knew about it, the entire family, including my sister, who was 
by, by Tom Burgess, uh, was my half-sister really, uh, she knew about it from the age of 12, but I didn't. And, um, and she handed me a photograph of um, a bloke called Carl Tipton, who was uh, a captain in the um, American army. And she said, that's your dad? And he, she said, that's your dad, and here's all his letters. And, um, and so um, she said, you expected me to kill her then, because, <laughs> because she left me with a man who wasn't my father. And, um, and that explains why the man who wasn't your father said, get out over the eggs, correct, leave yeah. my house. But, but then I hugged her. And because I said, look, what you did, what she did, she didn't have me adopted. She kept me in her will the best she could. Sorry about the upset. No, don't be. So, um, uh, and back then in that day, people did get rid of the kids, didn't they? So, yeah. It, it, back then, if... Yeah, they did. If a lot you of more babies were adopted. Yeah. But she, she held on. And uh, my sister was always jealous of me because... She knew at the age of 12, which I didn't know, and therefore she said, if we're going to be run over by a bus, both of us, your, my mum would save you, not me. And she was always jealous of that. And um, I couldn't really tell some of this story until these people have passed away, as it were. Okay. And um, so, um, so, yeah, that's what happened then. And so, you know, um, I, I, I then had peace in a way because I could understand it. And I could never understand it when I had my own kids. And almost they told me when I was, because I was blaming myself. I even phoned my family up once and said, it must be me because, you know, my wife's leaving me and my wife ran off with a man as well. And, um, and um, I had the kids, you know. So, um, but, um, yeah, uh, you know, so that's, that's, so I've jumped ahead there a bit. No, that's all right. So you've got, uh, yeah, let's rewind. So you've come let's out. Let's rewind. You've come out of school. You've come out, you've been made homeless, you've been put with a foster family. What did you do then from that point for work? I, um, I always worked. I had little jobs. I, I, um, I, 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 I suppose I was the beginning of a businessman because when I was doing a newspaper round as a kid, I realised that the newspaper shop had a problem when kids let him down. So I said, I'll take over the administration of all the kids and I'll pay them and I'll cream off something, um, but I'll give you a better service. You know, I did things like that. Yeah. I did pools rounds. I always worked, you know. And so I went, I went and got a um, Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering and I wanted to be in water. I wanted to be in dams and reservoirs and things. That's what I wanted to do. And it was because of my passion in, f in fishing. I had a big passion in fly fishing. Um, and so, um, yeah, Liverpool, um, I, I left when I was 18. I never lived there after that. Oh, you left at 18 and, and mm. went where? I went, I went up to the northeast, um, originally to Sunderland, to Sunderland Polytechnic, uh, and uh, did a bachelor's of science there. And uh, then I um, graduated and became a, 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 I worked in London, and there, Marble Arch actually, and I worked for consulting engineers, um, always in the water side, always in the water side. And I went, even as an undergraduate, before I graduated, um, we had to do six months of practical as well as the six months of theory. Mm. And so the first, I mean, the first students, we, we got a job in Zambia. Uh, me and my mate got a job in Zambia on £2.50 a week uh, uh, working. And what uh, was Zambia like? That, 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 that was interesting because that was the only time, I, I've got a life where disasters happen behind me and, and I walk in front of them somehow, yeah. I uh, know. It, it, my wife it says, at me. 
Pardon? They happen at me. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> yeah, we're different that way. Uh, uh, and in Zambia, I remember on Lake Tanganyika, uh, we were on a, a boat with a, a catamaran. With um, uh, you had to go up to the highest level in the middle, and we, I was swimming. I was swimming, and um, uh, and saw a crocodile underneath me, just looking at me. So I came back at super high speed up the side and managed to get to the very top. After a while, they got me into the water on skis for the first time. With crocodiles I, I, in there? They're just crocodiles. Oh, yeah, I, I know. You're, you're, you're 19 or something. You're mad when you're 19. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I got in skiing. I did all the tents. It was on a cine film, right? Um, we actually cined it. And then this chap on the boat had the idea of doing a ski jump over the back of a bloody hippo. Yes, <laughs> which was, you know. So I saw what he was doing. I let go. I let go. Swam back to the boat. I often wonder how I survived those days. So I had lots of adventures besides the work there. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I did, a, after that, I did one in Saudi Arabia, um, again, in, in, in Saudi. But what, the Saudi what, what was, was after I graduated. I worked in London, then did some work in the Middle East. What were uh, you doing in Saudi? Uh, there I was doing uh, water supply systems and, and road surveys. So we had to survey through sand dunes and things. I mean, most of the desert is rock and barren, you know. And that was in 67. I can remember that because, so I must have been about, I was born in 45, so I was 22 and I was now graduated. And um, that was quite funny because they had the Arab-Israeli war then. And I was out in the desert and we had lots of Arabs around us. They didn't speak English and I didn't speak Arabic, maybe a dozen words, you know. And um, it was quite funny because, because suddenly uh, I was in the truck and suddenly um, military music from Britain, Dan Buster's March, and all these came on. Well, that was normally I are. Arabic stuff, you know, mm. and now it's all military stuff. And everyone's getting excited around me and so on. And, um, and then we had to go in, in, back into Riyadh then, it was Riyadh, and I was hundreds of miles away. And you didn't have roads in the desert. What you did was follow other people's tire tracks, yeah? Mm. And we're in a plane which is about 20 miles across, level ground. But you had to know, and they had to set up a checkpoint. This didn't make sense, I know. But they set up a ch checkpoint with two oil drums and post across, yes? And a little hut, right, where the policemen were. And this is a new thing. But you had to know where it was to drive to it. So you could just drive. <laughs> <laughs> so you could just drive around. You could just drive around yeah. it. So, so uh, we actually got up to it and I was in the middle seat. There was a bloke there, an Arab there, an Arab guy driver. And the driver closed the window, saw this bloke, this policeman came round and they were all in white robes, yeah, these policemen, came round, this is an incredible story, and uh, they hit each other, <laughs> that's the best way, whack, whack, each other. yeah, and a lot of noise, I had about six um, workmen in the back, or maybe eight, I don't know, they all clammed out, the policemen started to run out of this hut, but the first one, they wear very long underpants, yeah, and as he was putting his underpants on, he tripped, so the one behind him tripped over him, Yes? Yeah. And now I'm watching, now I was reading a book at this time, so I thought the best thing, because now chaos enveloped a huge fight <laughs> around me, so I just kept reading the book in the middle, because what am I, at one point there were people punching across me, right? Mm -hmm. So I kept reading the book, stem staying out of this, you know, and <laughs> things. It turned out my driver was a slave of the policeman's family. And people don't understand this, slavery only stopped in the Saudis in the 1950s. Right? And what year was this? And this was 67. 67. So this is about 12 years after slavery stopped. And there's a lot of things going on. And they're still angry because the slave got away? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, so we got into Riyadh, and that's when I, there was 
well, I would not say riots, but there were, uh, uh, let's say the Europeans weren't popular at the time, uh, or whatever. Because of the Israeli uh, and conflict. So there was a, uh, we, our car, our van, a truck was jammed in pub public, and lots of noise. So I hid under the seat, and my driver helped me. And now, it's a very small space under the seat, but I was much skinnier then. I did manage it, okay? So I know what it's like to be scared, because I was scared then. So I had lots of adventures. There's lots of them in Zambia and, and around the world, you know. I did two tours to Saudi. And then what, after, what did you think of Saudi? Well, like? well, I was treated, I was treated like a prince. Uh, I mean, in Saudi, uh, the first day I was there, I arrived from the aeroplane to uh, a building where we had about 12 engineers. And about 10 of them came back from the square where they just watched the beheadings of, um, I think, 10 or 12 Yemenis, yes? And so they were quite sick about it, actually. And what, so, so 12 of the European men went no, to watch it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, so your work colleagues? Crowd. Okay. Yeah, they... my work colleagues. And they went to watch it. I don't want to see it. But I did go, I saw beatings and things. And they would simply arrive up at a lamppost and put a table there and amputate someone's hand, you know. So it was quite a ruthless and different culture then. And I, our grocery man got whipped in public because he supplied us with some Moore's bacon. You know, and gives was, bacon. Bacon's banned, of course, and drink is banned. But all of the, the all of the expatriate Saudi, all of the I can't go back now. All of the expatriate um, uh, enclaves, oil and that, had drink. Right, I mean, they did have drink, and it was very expensive to get. But yeah, you you could have it, providing. You, and I think they knew that. But as long as you were alone in that, or European, you know, it didn't bother too much. But I was treated with the greatest respect by by the people there, and. Um, I had to do a survey once through the desert, so I was driving with a few trucks, and my job was to survey where the road's going and whose land it was. Well, each time, each place I went to, the local emir, the prince, I went on trial there, by the way. I'll you, tell you, that's a good story. You went on trial? I went, yeah, I went on, I had a trial in Saudi Arabia. I was on trial, and I didn't know I was on trial until it was over. Yeah? Probably the probably best way. The best way. What were you on trial for? I'll come, anyway, I was, I was going through and giving, they, they gave these huge um, dinners for me. And it was a huge plate, maybe 10, 12 feet big, with many people sitting around it. You grab the rice, you grab the chicken and everything, yeah? And I separated it all off, so it was a little plate thing. And the shai, which is the, the Arabic tea, um, I used to have milk in, and halib is milk, yeah? Mm. So I used to order my tea with milk. And my Arabic name, I found out, for going forward in the villages, was the man who drinks milk in his tea. That was my name. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, anyway, one day there, I'll get to that story, one day there in my wild life, I'm in my mud hut, because that's all you had was mud huts. And um, the servant knocked at the door, and he said, Emir, Emir, you must come to sort of, so the Emir wants to see me, the prince, that's a local prince. So I, I go into a room, they're all sitting down, because there's no chairs, you, know, you sit down, and on rugs and that, and there's a bloke I recognise from the building site. Now you must understand, I, I represented the government to see the quality of work on the water tanks and on the distribution system. I did not... The British government? Pardon? You represented the Saudi government? I, represented the, I was employed by a British company who represented the Saudi government. Okay. I wasn't involved with the day-to-day -day, uh, payments or the day-to-day workman, that was the contractor. Someone's yep. been siphoning. Okay, so I'm sitting down and I see this bloke, I think a Turkish bloke, I think, who works on site, yeah. A lot of babbling going on. And they hand me a Coke, yeah. So I take the Coke and everyone's going, yeah, everyone. Why am I here? You know, so at one point, about to get beheaded. At one point, this bloke runs across the room, gets some papers and tries to rip them up. Everyone jumps on top of him, yeah. So, and then 
there's a mere does and obviously very angry and that and then he's dragged away well this is it now i'm curious right who can speak english so i'd say to my servant take me to the iraqi teacher who can speak english right right he's in the village in one of the mud huts so i get taken and, and there's a t- conversation my driver goes in there's a conversation and out comes the iraqi teacher so i'm very sorry i said i've never met you what are you sorry what are you sorry for and he said I'm the one who did the charges against you. I said, what charges? He said, for your trial. <laughs> I said, was it me on trial? <laughs> yes, he said. He said, what's happened? As I've just been told, he said, is the bloke, the Turkish bloke, had made it all up about you doing this and you doing that, right? And he decided to destroy, to destroy his statement. So he got sentenced to five years, chained to a bloody wall. <laughs> so I was on trial in Saudi, and everyone, after the trial, congratulated me, you see. Everyone came up and shaking my hands. And all I'd done is sit there and drink a, drink a, Coke. a Coke. And this is my Forrest Gump life. It is yeah, yeah. my Forrest Gump life. And um, even now, coming back from the uh, a television thing the other day from London, you know, because I've had desperate times getting back on the trains recently, one thing or another, strikes, floods, you name it. Um, my wife says, don't worry, you'll be the last one and there'll be a disaster behind you, Paul. You know, <laughs> that's how it works. So, yeah, I had, I had a hell of a life. And then after my second trip to Saudi, I, I had to... I, I did a Master of Science in Birmingham, Birmingham University in water resource technology. And um, now that is not what people think. I mean, it does include a wild field. But from there, I was headhunted, and I became straight away the water resource engineer for Cornwall. And that was 1970. Okay. That's the year I got married. In 1970, I was water resource engineer for Cornwall. And I built mathematical models of the atmosphere then, because I had to predict droughts for whole systems. You had to predict I, what? I, I had to predict droughts and floods. Okay. But you have to predict, you know, then you, it's a bad term to use, but you... You, these, it's a bad term to use these days, but you design a, a dam against a one in 1,000 year flood, yes? So what is one in 1,000 year flood? So you have to start studying the climate. So I built my models in 1970. You start one. studying the climate, this is where we're going to get your climate models. That's right. So that okay. started in the early 70s. Okay. And um, then the government decided, I then, I, I, I didn't realise who I was until two years ago. Oh, last year, I was giving a podcast in America, and they're asking me these sort of some similar questions, but more to do with the climate, obviously. And I realised I'm a disruptor. I didn't know it when I when I was in Cornwall. We had to combine with Somerset and Devon, to the whole of southwest of England. Mm. We had to combine for planning. So we went along to the Pope Posh Authority, Devon, who presented us with twenty man years of bound copies of work. Twenty man years of work. This is it. I flip open. I've got twelve or fifteen engineers around me. I'm just representing Cornwall with my boss, you know. And I, I start to flick through and realise every calculation is wrong, and it's wrong for a very simple reason. They hadn't filled the reservoirs up again. They'd done the calculations. So oh, yeah, I knew it was wrong. It said direct supply reservoir. It's like a bath. And they were saying average flow in two, average flow out yield four. Not possible. You can do short term four, right? But you can't get more out on average than you put in. So I said, this is, and everyone went quiet and they said, that's an interesting concept. And they had to withdraw the whole 20 man years of work, right? So then the whole I, 20 years of work. 20 man years of work. 20 man years of work. So, so, and that's the story there. And then. How did they take that? Not well. I mean, <laughs> I mean but Somerset said, Somerset engineer was a good bloke. He, he said, look, I don't understand this. It's beyond me, all what Paul's doing in the model, everything. But 
he's the only one who knows what you're talking about. <laughs> and I did. I, what I realised now, I didn't realise then, was and why I was headhunted, um, was that um, you know things had to change, as it were. And um, anyway, the government said, look, let's combine all authorities. So Devon, Somerset, Cornwall became Southwest, and um, Wales became Wales. Now I've traditionally, after Liverpool, uh, my home's been in Wales, right? And uh, and so I wanted to get back to Wales. So I applied for a job in in Gwynedd River Authority because I knew this is before we reform, so the small authorities were all going to be combined. But I wanted to get to head office in Wales, so I had to, the stepping stone was Gwynedd. So I went to Gwynedd, and that's when I was involved in the um, pump storage scheme in Norwich, which is the biggest in Europe at the time. Which again is to do with climates and solutions now. What yes, is that? explain that. The pump storage is you uh, overnight um, demand drops. Yeah. Anyone can go to energydashboard.co.uk and look up instantaneously the last two days' power from where it's coming from and that. Now, overnight it drops, um, but the most efficient stations are then coal, uh, uh, and then we had a lot of nuclear as well, and it's more efficient to run them if you could um, meet the peaks. So how, how can I explain this? When Coronation Street's on, and everyone takes a tea break, there's a big demand suddenly in electricity okay. and the coal and nuclear can't handle change quick so what they do is they pump up water overnight when it's all this spare electricity when the demand's low and it, it, uh, they actually uh, use 12 gigawatt hours to pump it up and they get 9.1 out but they can turn it on in three seconds okay. so in a few seconds they can meet the demand and balance the grid so it's like a balancing thing it's like a battery because you're storing energy up in a hill, Ready for it. and it's in Norwich and Clamberis. So I was involved in that a bit, um, just because that was in my patch. I was the water resource engineer for that patch. And then I applied for the job, the new job, which was going to be the head office in Brecon. And, um, and I became to Brecon and got the top job in my area, you know. Um, and then I was on government committees and all sorts of things, you know, and representing Wales, and I did the same thing there. <laughs> we were in a committee. As in disrupted? Pardon? As in disrupted? As in disrupted. I did away with the committee, really, because they're all talking about computer systems. Let me tell you something. Um, uh, government and computer systems don't mix, right? And but I, was, I was writing in five languages, you know, uh, computer languages. And um, so they had this new scheme on called the Technical Data Information Database. Uh, it was a unique scheme, the way it was modelled for rivers and things. And they said, will employ Logica to see how it's feasible. Is it feasible? And, and this is the plan. Is it feasible? How much will it cost? Well, I just went away and got it written in 10 weeks at a cost of 10,000 quid. Yeah? Yep. The feasibility study came in at cost 25,000 quid for the, to see if it's possible, right? And a quarter of a million in two years to do it. Yeah? And I then said, it's done. They said, <laughs> what do you mean it's done? So uh, they all came to Brecon. They couldn't believe me at first. And they all came to Brecon and saw it all working. Yeah? And, uh, and so I was then in a position, I, I, I was pretty well at the top of my career. I was still in my 20s. Wow. And, um, and I was very highly paid. I think I was probably one of the most highly paid people in the British water industry for my age at the time. Yeah. But I, um, above me um, was an assistant and director, and I can say it now, um, I, I never spoke to them about work. The whole time I was there, from 1974 till left about 1979, 80, 
I never spoke to them. I just did the work. And they, didn't, they read newspapers all day. And I came across incidents where I realised I, I did so many risky things and everything worked. Yeah? And there was one time they were trying to get rid of me and then I became famous. They didn't want to get rid of me anymore. <laughs> you know? And so on. Because how can I, um, I'll give you one example. Anti-coastal pollution lead contacts me because it wasn't just water planning and everything I was in charge. I was in charge of all data, sewage, everything to do with data and in particular the planning of water resources. Yes? And um, they contacted me and said, these are all the raw water, raw sewage coming out. Look at these, half a dozen around Wales. Is that right? So I rubbed back and said, it is right, but there's far more than that. Here we are, there's, there's all of them. Because my, my option, my world was, we're a public authority. The problem is we are pumping out the raw sewage, far more than they thought, right? And unless we identify the problem, we'll never cure it. The problem is we don't have the money to do it. Yes? Mm-hmm. Identify the problem, then if you want to create a political forum, fine. Get the money to do it. And um, I got criticised for that. Heavily criticised for, for telling the truth and telling how telling bad the, the problem was. So, so you were an early doors whistleblower? Yeah. I left a whistleblower in the newspapers. I got headlines and everything. About what? I've forgotten, actually. It's to do with the housing estate. I've actually forgotten. I was trying to remember it the other day. Mm. But um, I'm 78 now, so you can forgive me for getting that one. But I did. I had a headline in the West of Mill. And so um, I... And another one then, after I'd left, I came across, I became a free, a free helper for justice. That's the best way. Injustice really gets to me. Mm-hmm. I think that's what drives me. And a bloke, this is absolutely a true story. The Water Authority had charged a bloke for, um, he had a cabin opposite, a wooden cabin opposite his house across the road. No water supply, but they charged him water rates. So they came across to inspect. And he, he brought them in. Look, I've got no water here. You can't ch- you charge it for the house, but not for this. And his wife brought him a cup of tea. Yeah, as you would. Two cups of tea, right? And the bloke said, you've just conveyed water across, so you need to pay water rates because there's water in the tea. So they're actually going through a court proceeding on this. I phoned up my old people. <laughs> when he came to me, mm. I phoned up my old people and said, You've got 24 hours, otherwise you're going to have, you know, the 150, whatever it was, pound cup of tea. Yeah, in all the newspapers and television, because I'd used publicity. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd had chairman of boards sacked and all sorts of things and other stories, yeah? Mm. And uh, they backed down, of course, and stopped the court proceedings and so on. So I became a sort of um, a free, free helper of injustice. And I think that's what's always attracted me. Um, to do it is injustice. It creates a harder life. Um, but it's injustice. So, um, yeah. that, so I, I, yeah, I've got many, many stories like that, and I can't go on forever about them. You, you said in there, you said as you were talking through about thinking about when you was at the water board, that you met your wife. Um, when? Sorry. You said you met your wife. 1970. 1970. That's when we got married. Yeah. You got married in 1970. Yeah. Did you have go on to have children? Yeah, I had four children, and we lost a baby. We we lost, we lost, uh, we lost our fourth baby actually. James, and um, then we uh, had another How old was he? No, it was at birth, but it was was caused by incompetence of the doctor. And um, what happened then was, um, in the the practice, there was a gynecologist, and um, I had him around for, we had a number of people around for dinner. I had a a bit of a mansion then as well, by the way. And um, I saw it once on CNN, after we'd sold it. So what, the mansion? The mansion, yeah. And I saw Prince Charles and Camilla in front of it when they first became public, their first image, in front of my mansion. Wow. So the servant told us that they'd sleep in my son's bedroom, that's where they go, yeah? 
And so it's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, yeah, watching yeah, the royal family follow you, you know. Anyway, I could say, I can't say the Prince of Wales slept here. I could have put a plaque up saying he was going to sleep here. Yes? Yeah, yeah. And um, so that's what my Forest Gump life, you would not believe it. So, yeah, I, and um, I don't know how it's relevant, but I started a business in 1970 as well, and it's in fly fishing. And I ran that business as a part-time thing. And my main income was the other one. Well, that built up. And by, um, by the 1979-80, I just packed in. I couldn't, take the, I couldn't take the fact that public authorities gear everything to themselves. They don't gear for the public. There's no discipline. What do you mean? Pardon? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, they, they gear everything to suit their life, okay. not to serve the public, okay. Okay. because they're allowed to. Because in a normal environment, if you're not serving the public and they happen to pay, they'll stop paying. So you have to make sure they're happy yeah. to some extent, right? Otherwise, you lose out. Public authorities aren't like that. Because so you, you have to pay anyway. No. Yeah. And uh, they're just given it. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit like people say, people like say in councils, they say, you know, top council people are getting two or three hundred thousand quid a year. Well, I run a big business. No, you don't. Anyone can run a business where you're given all the income, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and all you're doing is controlling the spending. I'm not doing a very good job at that either. So uh, I became involved in politics a bit as well then, uh, going back then. Um, and um, In what way did you get involved? Well, in I, was in my fa- I had a factory and, uh, and um, Biffin, who was, was a cabinet minister at the time, I think, he came round and he, I had a chat with him, talking about business. I won the, I beat Jaguar Motorcars into second place in Wales for the most innovative product. They had the electronic system the new Jaguar in the 80s mm. and I won I won against all the competition for my new fly line and for, fly, um, for fishing fishing yeah fly line fly fishing and so I um, I um, you know uh, did things like that and Biffin um, afterwards they invited me to be the treasurer of the um, Conservative Party locally and I said I'm not even a member I mean I'm involved in politics but I'm not a member of any party and um, I didn't like the way that was done I got a letter through the post to say, would you like to join anybody like the police authority, the health authority? Do you mind if I ask how big your business was at this time? Like, why are they contacting you like this? It wasn't the business that was doing it. It was, um, it, it was the mansion, uh, yeah. the look of the mansion. And the, so you just uh, owned a big house and for that reason they were all contacting you? Yeah, what yeah they you look, it looks that way, you know, Lord of the Manor and all that. It looks that way. And, um, but I'm a working class lad in this situation and I'm a, I'm a truth teller doesn't work well. So I had a letter to say, which would you like to join? And I understand, how do you invite me from the outside? So I could join a police authority and be a member, choose which one. Well, I rejected it because, um, I rejected it because that's not a good way to have people representing people. Uh, mm. and, and I, re- I don't like the old boys network. So I've always resisted it. Just in the fact, <laughs> I resist the Masons the same way, you know. I don't want anything like that. And um, uh, and so I don't I don't do that. Uh, and um, so I'm a very simple person, really. Uh, um, I I um, I use my skills to get lots of patents worldwide on my products. Yeah. And we just sold our fly line business about three years ago, two or three years ago, and it got voted the best line in America now. You know. But I also had to compete against major multinationals who play dirty tricks. So I really realised what dirty tricks around the world were. And that brought in, I was now travelling to 33 countries selling my product. I couldn't keep doing that. 
I got into all sorts of adventures in those 33 countries, <laughs> but I, I couldn't keep doing it. So I made videos, and we got a VHS suite to begin with, and then we went into, I think it was called an M2 suite, which is broadcast level. And so I ended up doing a lot of editing, a lot of video work in the 1980s. And my claim to fame, there was a film called uh, Fatal Attraction, yeah. and a famous film. And I is think Michelle it's, Pfeiffer? Pardon? Who, who's in that? Is that Michelle Pfeiffer? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, okay. So. And um, a good film. And, um, and it sold 20-odd thousand copies, we're told, of the VHS tapes. And that year, I sold 65,000 copies of Modern Fly Fishing Tactics, Volume 1. Wow. And I did it by cheating. I, I put them on the... We invented the front of the magazine offer business. You invented? The magazine offer business. So when you see, especially 80s and 90s, you'd see gifts stuck on the front of magazines. Okay. We had 80% of the market at one point. Okay. Right? And uh, so we would be told, oh, well, there's this issue, and we'd find a product. Not just fishing, you know. But I did, I stood the whole VHS tape on the front of a magazine. So I sold 50-odd thousand that way. So the rest was cheating, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but I still got a profit out of it, yeah? Okay, and then, you had, and then you could give the statistic that you had the most selling. That's right. Okay. You can cheat like that. But um, so, okay. I, that's, so what you've got now is climate modelling, yeah. And you've got video, which more or less sums me up as video as Climate Man today, <laughs> because I use video to communicate. I don't do them. I, I, I went around the world on my own boat with my wife, and, um, uh, and we started that in, started the adventure in 2008. We finished about 10, 11 years later. And, um, so you travelled around the world for 10 years? Yeah. With your first wife? Is it but, no, no. My, 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 well, she wasn't my wife then, my, um, but my, my, my new... Uh, my new partner, yes, uh, yes, who I'd been with now for 20 years and then. Okay. So um, there's a whole pile of stories that way, you know. But I had a second wife. Um, I had a second wife, and then this is my third wife, this one. Okay. And, um, but I've been with this one a long time, and the second wife is um, to do with the bomb. <laughs> yeah. To do with the bomb? The bomb. The bomb. The bomb. Let's get on to that. Right. Um, so, your first, so your four children were with your first wife. Yes, I haven't had any more children. Okay, so then you split with that wife. Yeah. And then you meet... I meet a wife. Well, you're vulnerable. Actually, I, I was 45 or something. I don't know, 43. And you're vulnerable. I'm 41, so I'm going to be vulnerable in four years. You're going years. to be vulnerable in four years. If your world <laughs> drops away from you, and I, I, my two older children were away from home anyway, but I kept the two children from the first marriage. Yeah. And, and so... Um, and, you know... Uh, People, running, people going with people is a symptom of a break. It's a symptom. It's not the breakdown. It's a symptom. I, 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 I'm not bothered about that part. Um, um, but um, I was vulnerable. So I had the two kids. And I met this woman who had two kids. And, um, and entered a new life, as it were. And, it was and you, was you, you were successful at this age, 45? You oh, had, yeah. Was this after the mansion? Yeah, yeah. No, the mansion has got sold because my first wife didn't like it. Okay. I wish we hadn't, actually. But my first wife wanted a normal five-bedroom or four-bedroom house, and that's what we had. And then we, we, got, we got moved to uh, lots, of, lots of stories there I don't want to go into. Okay. And I don't want to involve my first wife. She's a decent woman. Okay. So um, then my second wife, um, I, I, I can only tell certain parts of this because it's all legal implications. But my second wife... Um, uh, I got involved in, in a lot of criminality in, in my, my factory with people stealing from me. 
And most of all, I can say this, a manager, my top manager, was not only stealing from me, he was sabotaging our product. So we lost contracts. And, and, um, and so um, that was going to court. He was being taken to court by the CPS. Why would he be doing that? Who was he doing? Was he doing that for it, other contractors who were there was your someone competitors? Else involved. There was someone else involved. Your yes. competitors? Yeah. Well, he was also making money out of it. Yeah. But okay. yeah, competitors. And so what happened then? Um, very simply, um, I was in court, um, waiting for the big case. We had all the detectives there. We had a huge amount of proof that the manager was stealing. We'd recovered a lot, you know. Um, we'd had people change sex in the middle of all this. It really is a funny story, actually, when I mind. <laughs> what, what sort of sums was he stealing? We're we talking large money. You're here? talking about ten in the 1980s. You're talking about at a time ten thousand quid. Uh, and that's but, what he was stealing each time. Yeah, 10, but the damage 000. was losing big contracts, which are worth millions. I millions, guess. Yeah, well, going on well, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. But hundreds. Today's day millions. And growing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So and so we were being devastated as a business that way, and. Um, I can tell you this now because, of course, we sold the business. And, um, and then we ended up in court, and I was down in, in, in uh, Method Tidville in court waiting, and suddenly, now my wife's not involved in this at all, this manager, my wife involves, arrives as a witness for him. Wow, you know, wow. So, not involved at all. So, um, then um, my barrister, the barrister calls me in and says he's a He'll agree, the thing is 18 charges, and he'll agree to so many. So I pick some of the charges, yeah, and he'll plead guilty, yeah. So I went into court then for his pleading guilty, and then the judge said, yeah, but you've stolen from your employer, big time. And you're not going to get away with this, because, you know, what you've done is pass the normal thing. Threshold, yeah. And he didn't know the judge about the sabotage or anything, didn't get a chance for all that. And he gave him just four months, right, um, which we'd served too, yeah. Mm. And he got dragged away. Four hours after that, a bomb went off in Brecon that blew the end terrace. Well, the next house to the end terrace became the end terrace. The roof and all the walls went. The end terrace of where you lived? No, no. I, no, a bomb oh, went off. Okay, just I, right. I, lived, I lived outside Brecon a mile or two. Okay. This bomb went off in Brecon and people phoned me up because I'd already known. My wife had left me, by the way. Uh, and this one, and and run off with a young man, and um, um, I'd already learned um, that I'd been told there was a price on my head of twenty thousand quid by her. She right. put up twenty thousand. She put up twenty grand. The person she gave that to came to see me and said, "I've just been paid twenty thousand pounds." Uh, no, I'm going to be paid twenty thousand to kill you. So I called in the police. I then it, they put an alarm by my bed. So it goes straight through to the police station. That's what happened. So there's that background now. And then yeah. she arrives at the court. And oh, so then, she, okay, so, so, she, so you're really split with her when she arrived yes. at the court. Oh, yeah. She turns up at court, you, you start yeah. two and two what together. What's she going to do with this? Nothing, because not involved at all, you know. And, um, but he pleads guilty. So she's a bit, and she, she actually, when he got sentenced, she walked out the court and slammed the door. You could hear the blinking noise through the building, you know. So it, 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 something was happening. Four hours later, the bomb goes off in Brecon. I get phone calls, there's a bomb gone off in Brecon. Now, I'd already warned the police that there was PE4 being stolen from the army. PE4 was a white plastic thing. Plastic you know, explosive. Plastic explosive. So I'd already told them. Oh, Brecon, you've got your army base here. Army base at Sennybridge. Yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine, I can tell you this now, a friend of mine was the civil servant in charge of the range. The civil servant, not in the army. 
And I said to him, how can they steal? Because when the bang goes off, say they're going to use two sticks, the bang would vary depending on the direction of the wind and everything, yes? And so if I only put one stick out but wrote two sticks, yeah, this is Detective Burgess now. Mm. And I was right, by the way. I was right. This is how they did it. And so I knew it was coming from the army, and I told the police all this, but they didn't believe me. But they did believe my wife. <laughs> and <laughs> they thought I was the biggest drug baron in Wales, right? Oh, so she'd made allegations to the police that yeah. he was involved in drugs. And I, 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 I've never done drugs in my life, mm. ever. <laughs> and, and I was the biggest drug baron in Wales sort of thing. And, um, and this was swallowed by the police. Now, I can tell you this now, and this is the first time I've ever been able to say this part. My solicitor for the divorce calls me in and says, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't tell anyone. And, um, yeah, when your wife was being done for fraud, my wife got done for fraud during all this, by the way. She defrauded lots of people, right? And um, when she was being done for fraud, the CPS bloke said to another solicitor, among solicitors, we're going to let her off because her husband's the biggest drug baron in Wales, and he's a so-and-so. And so we're going to make sure she gets her suspended. You know? So she went in for this and just got nothing, really, social. No, nothing, just suspended, eh? And came out, yeah. But hold on, my sister knew I wasn't. <laughs> so she told me, and it came from the CPS, right? So the CPS was the leak. And so after that, I thought about it. So I phoned up Brecon Police Station, and I said, they said, who is it? And I said, apparently, it's, it's the biggest drug baron in Wales. Um, what do you mean? I, and, and, I, and I said, well, you apparently think that. And they said, who told you? They didn't deny it. They said, who told you? Which tells me it was true. And so I, I said, I can't say. And they, and they thought it was one of the detectives set, telling me, who I was friendly with, who wasn't on that case, yes. And it wasn't, it was the CPS. Like, that's the first time mm. I've ever been able to say it, because it's solicitor to solicitor, mm. years ago. So, um, so now, when the bomb goes off in Brecon after the court case, mm. people phone me up, a bomb's gone off in Brecon. So I phone the police and say, um, if it's PE4 involved in the bomb, you know where it's come from. I've been telling the truth all this time. And, um, and where did the bomb go off? What got blown up? Um, well, imagine an end terrace house. You've got a roof yeah. and you've got three walls. Yeah. All those went. But did it accidentally go off in the house? Oh, no, I can tell you it went off now. Yeah, well, yeah. um, I didn't know it at the time, yeah. right? Um, it went off because um, um, they'd stolen about nine sticks, right? And they had two sticks. So a phone call came in to this bloke and said, we want a bomb, but we don't want to do it. He'd never built a bomb, the bloke. But uh, he was involved in drugs, yeah? Okay. So they, he had a girlfriend of 16. So they're in the house... And they go and collect the two sticks, the girl says. This is the girl I interviewed afterwards, privately. Yeah? She was 16 at the time. So she, she brings the two sticks back into the house. Oh, no, they get them, so they bring it back into the house. And they're putting it together with a little diagram. And it's a little thing with a, a, a little piece of wires going around, a little thing that sets it off, detonator. But it needs a 9-volt battery. Well, these little flat 9-volt batteries live in burglar lumps. So rather than go to, not burglar, spoke alarms. So rather than go to buy one, um, she, he gets up to take the battery out to put on the circuit. At which point the 16-year-old says, I'm going to get my fags. So she doesn't, she doesn't drive. So she goes to the outside of the car, opens the door, and puts her head inside to get the passenger seat fags when the house disappears. Yeah. 
What they'd done is they connected the battery when the circuit was closed. And one of them was killed instantly, and the other died, was completely out of it, lost all his limbs, everything, and was just a, a bit of a body for a week or so. And then I said, they never could be interviewed because they were completely... So how does this associate... So they were planning on blowing you up? I believe so, yes, because yes. Um, what happened then was um, the police denied that I'd told them about the PE4. Okay. The police lied. Now, I'd never come across this before. I mean, I'm just what, a police normal... police lying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never... welcome to my world. I know. <laughs> so I'd never come across this before. I've never come across and telling the truth. <laughs> so, um, and the police, um, and I was upset by that because, again, Paul, an injustice. Yeah, I'm not going to have that. So I, I, we did, the newspapers got involved and everything, but um, television, HTV came to see me, it's like ITV in Wales, yeah? yeah? And they have a programme, a documentary, Wales This Week, with a big story every week. And um, they came to see me and they said, we know you're telling the truth, but we can't tell you how we know. That's fine, you know, no sources. And um, we did a documentary which didn't name people as such, all right? And, um, and, and so they did a documentary, but the documentary did accuse the police, because I did, I'm lying. I was telling, I didn't tell them before. Yes? So, um, now my informant, the man who did the 20,000 pound tape to tell me, was in, in another world to me. Right, that's the best way. As in a criminal world? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's up to, I'm not, I can't say that. Okay. Right. But uh, he's in another world to me, I'll put it that way. Yeah. And so I'm not saying he's a criminal. Right? Okay. Although he, although I did have him arrested and prosecuted afterwards for... Uh, pestering me, if you like, for, you know, for threatening me, actually. And, well, threatening to kill me, actually, as well. But he, he, he got done for that. But um, there was another world I was involved in, and, and, I, and I had to be involved for the divorce, because the divorce told me things like when the bomber was in... When the, the, oh, they arrested the two people who, because I gave them information to the police, I'd got, on this incredible story, you could make a documentary out of this, I got the bloke who told me who was in prison on drug charge, right? And he'd been in remand for about eight months on just having some cannabis or something, which was like ridiculous. And, and they were trying to get information out of him, I think. Anyway, I had him moved to a mental hospital because I had a contact who had a contact in the home office. And we used a very unusual law to get a prisoner out of prison into mental home so I could speak to him properly, yeah? which I could do. I could walk around the gardens with him and everything. Yeah. And so that, that's what happened then. And so he, he was my main informant. Yes. And um, so um, what happened then was um, they did the documentary and then they arrested my main informant, the police. They accused him of perversion the course of justice by giving false information and paying money for the documentary. Now, at no point did I mention money to do with the documentary. At no point was I paid anything. That's not true. I, was, I received a cheque for £10 or £12 for the electricity used while they were filming in because they've got to do that. So you a know, documentary come out telling this story and then the police decided to arrest him. Not me, no, the informant. The, the informant. Yeah. Because so, the, did the documentary embarrass the police? Yes, totally. Yeah. Totally so, embarrass the police. Yeah. Right. So um, then um, what happened then was the police interviewed me to get information, but I would never, well, there was nothing to give. I, I, I couldn't prove any criminality, so I wasn't, you know, for them. So they wanted me on their side, you know, in a way, and, and I was upset by them. 
so what happened then was um, the police arrested him and took him to trial in Merthyr Tidville in the Crown Court. And I was a witness, right? And um, I was outside, and as you know, when you're a witness, you have to stay outside, you can't. Not him. But at the beginning of the trial, it's unbelievable this. Uh, 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 South Wales Police, David should be ashamed of themselves, right? David Powers Police, sorry. Um, at, the, at the beginning of the trial, the judge said, look, a lot of this case revolves around whether this Mr. Burgess, I'm not on trial, whether this Mr. Burgess was telling the truth or not. Because he said he told the police. So can I please suggest that we have a police officer up who he's supposed to have told? Yeah. yeah. Now I told four police, four of them. And by sheer luck, this is where chaos follows behind me, they chose an honest policeman. Right? And he admitted it. And pardon? Yeah. He, he and so, but before he admitted it, I was outside and suddenly this policeman was in with the uh, very senior policeman in rooms and I think uh, put under a lot of pressure actually. Anyway, he goes in and um, he, and I don't know this because I'm outside and, he, and he's asked, did Paul Burgess tell you about? And he said, yes. And uh, he explained. Well, there was uproar in the court. It was like a Perry Mason thing this, it really yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Because now the police a policeman had admitted. Now, if you think about this, if I'd have told one policeman, uh, that's not a secret anymore with the police, is it? Yes? But the police now had been in the Western Mail they're saying I'm a liar and everything. Yes? So, uh, uh, and all I've been doing through all this, I was in a world which was mad. I, was, I, I, I encapsulated in a mad world around me is the best way. I had, I had an interface with uh, like a criminal world, yeah, which I'm getting information from. And, um, and so, um, what happened then was I came in as a witness and the judge said, uh, as soon as I was sworn in, the judge said, Mr. Burgess, I'm going to tell you something to save upset. The police have already admitted that you told them, which is great. Yeah. So I gave my evidence and uh, the, I then I was smoking a pipe in those days. And this is about 98, I think, 1998. I'm smoking a pipe and I come outside. And you could light your pipe, you could get away with it, you know. So, and I would either stood my pipe to go outside or wherever it was. And I must have been outside after my thing for five, and that was after the trial was over, the jury went out. I came out and they couldn't have walked to the jury room and walked back. That was the sort of timing, yeah? You're looking at 10 or 15 minutes mm. before the jury came back. And of course, this man was found totally not guilty, right? Yeah. And then I came out to an interview with the BBC on the steps. It's private eye covered the story, by the way, very well, yeah. And, um, and so this made the second te television documentary by HTV, because HTV had been telling the truth as well, hadn't they? And so they were accused upset. by the police. That, yeah, and, they, and, they been, and so on. So, so the second documentary came out. Now, at that point, uh, I was with a new girlfriend, if you like, and she said, stop it, Paul, because uh, I was going to go on and, and take complaints to the police all the way through. And, and she said, stop it, Paul, because you know, it just dominates your life, which you had been doing for years now, right? So that's, that's the story of that. But, um, and two, two young people died making the bomb. Um, the only purpose could have been to blow me up that night. It happened four hours after the, the cause. Cool. But a, a piece of information, I, then after this followed the divorce from the woman. Yeah. And they shared it for a day, it lasted two weeks. And all the other cases were shoved off because my barrister went for nothing, her getting basically nothing, yes? Now there's a, le there's a level of money that you can get and 
So I said, I'll agree to that, providing, you know, because it's costing me a fortune. I was borrowing money now, left, right and centre, to finance, legal and everything, yeah? Mm. And, um, but the big thing, that she was on drugs, my wife, which I, I found, and you found out when I was with her, one of the problems, and I'd really tried to get her off. And the doctor... What sort of drugs? She was, she was on 100 milligrams of diazepam a day. Okay. 100 milligrams. I don't know. In, in the, well, a 30 would kill me. In the trial, uh, when I put that, in her case, she said, he's lying, he's lying, he's lying to the judge. I was only on 80. A big difference. To which the judge said, you had a prescription for two, <laughs> and you were on 40 times. The prescription, not much difference, is that? No, no. <laughs> anyway, the other thing is she was matron of honour to the two people who were arrested after I gave information, because I knew where the P came from. When, when, when I gave the information, the people were arrested and jailed. When the bombers were in prison, she was the maid of honour for a wedding. For them? For them, one of them. So that showed an association after the bombing. Yeah. You can't say, I'm innocent, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. You, all right. And uh, it got worse than that, actually. So um, the judge took two weeks and he called us in a month later and he read, he read, on a, read a piece of paper for three hours to sum up my divorce. She got nothing, basically. She got I, nothing? No. Well, she, she got the legal thing I'd <laughs> already agreed to. Some good news at the end to. of it all. Right? Some good news at the end of it oh, all. Oh, that's right. She got nothing. And, um, and, then, and then afterwards, she went bankrupt and everything. Because it wasn't just me that was karma. involved. Karma. Oh, karma came to big, big time. And um, so, um, so that's what happened there. And um, so uh, um, then, then... Uh, the police came around to arrest one of my thieves at the factory one day, and there were two or three detectives there, and I was there, and I said, I'm curious, I said, because when the court think, they said, in the court trial for the bombers, they said that my informer and another, which I assume was going to be me, um, were planning, planning to um, kidnap his wife. And, and I said, it doesn't make sense, because that can only be me. But this was... Um, uh, and the PE4 was stolen to protect them. So can you imagine trying to protect someone with two sticks of PE4? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you don't move, I'm going to chuck this. What, what do you say? So anyway, what, what, it was quite interesting because they, uh, a year later, they called me in. And they arrived at my home and said, we're not arresting you, Paul, but there's a charge against you for a kidnap. I said, what? And they said, we know, we know, we know. So I had to go in and um, I said, hold on. Um, they actually got the timing wrong. First of all, I'd never met the kidnapper until six months afterwards, yes? Mm. And, and, and the person who was supposed to be kidnapped, and it was totally fake. And it was the bomber trying to get, you know, the thing out. It was laughable. It was just laughable. And that was it. I've never been arrested in my life, by the way, for anything, or prosecuted for anything. So um, that was it. So uh, it's a very complicated story there. Yeah, but yeah. it's just part of it. But having come through from that, you know, I had some girlfriends and that, and then I met the woman of my life, really, who I've got now. I'm very lucky. And... Um, and we, she had the travel bug, I didn't, because I'd been to 30-odd countries, I'd done it all, and we bought a boat, and um, having never sailed before, <laughs> sailed around the world. Well, I say around the world. You sailed yourself. What? You sailed yourself. Oh, yeah, oh, sailed, yeah. We, we had help on the first trip across the Atlantic, um, from around the Indian Ocean, on a 6,200-mile journey across the Atlantic. We had help with that, because I had to have assistance, just in case. And if I hadn't had that, we'd be in trouble because it kept breaking down. And I had someone from the boatyard fixing it as we went, 
yes. But um, so that was that. And then we had wild adventures, a whole pile of wild adventures. But by now, of course, I was becoming very alarmed about the narrative on the climate change. And so I got involved in that and in politics. And, um, and, and Brexit, was you involved in Brexit? And only in the sense that I was involved in, I, I would finance meetings. Like in Brecon, I financed you know, a thousand quid for a organiser meeting to come against other politicians. So we had all the different politicians there and I financed that to, um, to be able to talk about Brexit and expose it to the people. Mm. I was involved in UKIP a lot then and, okay. um, and ended up, we ended up, the Brecon branch of UKIP, the Powers branch, ended up campaigning against UKIP. Why? Why? Oh, because they foisted someone on us who'd never been anything, and uh, it's a long story. But they, I don't want to damage UKIP now because it's run well now. But um, uh, they foisted someone on us, and as a candidate, when we already had a candidate, and it was so extreme and unfair. And this person, you know, we campaigned against what was being done. I don't want to get into it; it's okay. very complicated. But the whole committee um, resigned from UKIP and campaigned against. The person they put That's right. So, uh, and I was on, I used to be on LBC an awful lot um, on politics and things. So, um, t you know, as a phone in. They used to phone me up sometimes and say, come on, you know. Mm. But um, the last time I was on LBC, I remember distinctly, and I was with the man recently, didn't know who it was that way. And it was uh, Matt Stadlin from, he's a left wing uh, commentator, if you like. And, and I phoned up, I mentioned climate change, and he said something to the effect that I should be ashamed of myself or even saying these words. What, what words did you say? I don't know, just what? that basically that the whole thing is wrong and it's not based on science. And you should be ashamed to even mention that, you know, that's terrible. Don't forget you've got politicians in the States and here calling for people to be arrested for having my views on climate change. You know, that's not too far away actually. And um, so um, I, I thought well, that's it, I'm finishing with the thing. I had a few incidents like that. But the time before that when I phoned in, it involved you. Involved me? Yeah. I phoned in. I'm a well-known voice. Lots of people know me. And so the commentator, after talking a bit, said, um, Paul, um, your voice has been recognised on a Toby Robinson video. So I said, yeah. Uh, so you're... So I said... I then said these Toxic things. Tommy strikes again here. Oh, toxic Tommy, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I said, oh, you mean the real Tommy Robinson, which is three 50-minute episodes? Yeah. I mean, that was a really good bloody set of programmes. So, so people understand, um, Paul put together a three-part series, which was the real Tommy Robinson. So before anyone else had done this, or before I'd, been, before I'd sat and get podcasts telling my life story, Paul sort of pieced my entire life story together in three-piece uh, three documentaries, which I was very grateful for. And that, that come out, when, when did Panadrama come out? It was just before that, wasn't it? No, no, Panadrama came out after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we, the three-part series was just because I remember thanking you on stage at Panadrama. You did? Thanking you for the time. Yeah. Um, I remember you phoning me up about Panadrama. I actually came up with the words, I think. Did you? I said to you on the phone, when you phoned me up that night, you said, Arr! and I said, this is, this is not so-and-so. It's, it's not Panorama, it's, Panad it's um, Panadrama. Okay, it was a great and, name. I, I honestly, yeah, I claim that one. So, no, what happened there was, uh, I then said on, to, on, on, on air, I, I, I said, oh, I didn't just commentate on it, I produced it. Yeah, I, 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 I produced it. And I said, I produced, don't forget I had you crying on it. I had tears coming out. Yeah. You've done the, done the revenge today, haven't you? <laughs> so, so, that was filmed uh, sat there, though. No? Yeah, so, um, and the, uh, 
what, what happened there was the, um, I, I just told him and I said, and he's not the man you think he is, you know, and he's not a racist, he's the least racist, the words were, he's the least racist person I know. It mustn't have gone down well with him. No, it totally didn't go down well, <laughs> no. Uh, and you are actually, you are. I mean, people who know you yeah. know that the image out there of you is totally different on, it really is different. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 and um, I, I support you because uh, you're an honest man and a very brave man, mm. uh, a truthful man, you know, the lot. Uh, and you are telling the truth all the time. Mm. And as long as you do that, you've got my 100% support in public. I, I don't mind that at all. I support that, right. Um, and so I don't mind. It worries the people around me. Uh, I'll be honest about that, it does. But I'll never back down from that because that's, that's asking me not to be me. And I won't do that. Meaning it worries them because they're fearful of what repercussions could come from speaking out or certainly aligning yourself with me. Yes. You know, I understand it. Yeah. I fully so, understand it. Yeah. And, and, and it's wrong. That's wrong because that's violence on the other side. Uh, and that's why they make you so toxic. That's why they do that. They make me such a toxic figure because they don't want anyone ever listening to what I'm saying. Yes. So then by scaring everyone, making everyone else scared, that, as I said, the amount of GB news presenters that, that secretly have discussions with me and talk to me, all of them. Yeah, I, know. I actually know. I know things I can't say. I know. I know. But yet they're all sitting there. They, have, they all sit there. I had to watch Julie Hartley Brewer slam me on TV. And I thought, you talk to me. Yes. What are you doing? Yes. Why are you doing this? I know. It's, it's pretty insulting at times. I know. It is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I think uh, it's because you, call, you, you claim to be truth tellers. Yeah. But yet you have an opinion which you're now actually going against your own opinion mm. based on fear. Most of them I don't think go against their own opinion. They just don't talk to mention you, really. Yeah, uh, they're not mentioned. Well, they're not allowed to. Not allowed to. They're no. not allowed to, yeah. Um, not even GB News. And, and, you see, I think what they're saying, GB News, I think in a way, I'm hoping that in a way they would like to have you on, mm. but they're worried at this stage in their development mm. that it's just too much of an ask you know, because you're so bloody toxic that it's too much of an ask. And that's what I think. I was in contact with, my, with them over the uh, Mo Rami documentary, which was yeah. the, um, the Phantom Rape Gang, which was yeah. essentially me making a documentary proving the innocence of the Muslims. Yeah? Yes. They still shit they, they bought They watched it. Oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. But they were too scared to that's talk right. to me about it. But, uh, I said, get me and Mo together. Like, what's yeah. the problem? Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah. But it seems that there's some... Well, I found a lot out in my podcast with Calvin Robertson yes. of who says I can't come on, the reason why I can't come on. It's one of their producers, the man who used to work with for, the, for Good Morning Britain. Right. Yeah, he, he said that my show with Piers Morgan, when I held up the Quran, he said nearly ended his career. So he's so terrified, apparently. Yeah. And so because a lot of people support you, who will say? There's, in, within the political world today, mm. with an absolute terrible government, a terrible opposition, uh, slightly worse than the government maybe, but it couldn't get much worse. Uh, and and yeah, most people have different views to those two parties. Most mm. people do. Most normal people have got more common sense now. And now, if you look at my history, it's, um, uh, it's video climate is the big thing I came back into mm. over the last 10 years or so. 10 or 14 years, more than that really. And um, so I, I, I joined for Britain with Anne-Marie Waters, became their environmental spokesman. You know. And all I do these days, I don't get involved with backing a party. I do say, don't vote, don't vote for any party that backs net zero. Only vote for parties Talk that drop net zero. Talk to me about net zero. 
So for someone who has no idea what net zero is, net zero is what's causing now chaos because they're trying to hit worldwide. The, worldwide, they're trying to hit these net zero figures, which is costing us fortunes. And they're trying to destroy the farming industry. Can you just give a brief description so people who do not understand what net zero is? There's a thing called plant food, plant food, which is called CO2. Plants breathe in CO2. The world needs CO2. The initial part of CO2 is quite important for the warming of the earth. After a certain part, adding the CO2 has no effect. I'm really shortening this. It has no effect at all. But if you can make CO2 toxic, if you can make something that is essential to life, you're made of it. So am I. All higher forms of life are made of it. You know, I mean, there's a few microbes under the sea living off sulfur vents and things, maybe not. But basically, if it drops below a certain level, all life on Earth goes. Yes? They've made it toxic. Now, if they can do that, and then they even use children, like Greta, who, when she's interviewed in Congress, or as, I don't know, the Senate or Congress hearing, said, when asked, what's the science behind you, saying, you know, panic alarm, she said, oh, no, there's no science. I don't know. Don't refer to any science. No, no, don't use that. Oh, what do you mean by panic? Oh, that's just a metaphor. I don't mean to panic. Yeah, I, 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 do, that in, I do that clip on my videos because people don't understand how, how hypocritical these people are. Mm. So they use CO2. Now, it, CO2 is rising like hell because it comes out of petrol comes out of diesel, comes out of coal, comes out of cement, comes out of almost anything you do, yes, in okay. modern life. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have modern life. Now, w without oil, we wouldn't have the chair you're sitting on, right? You wouldn't have the watch, you wouldn't have your coat, you wouldn't have your jeans, you wouldn't have the cameras videoing us now. You wouldn't have anything. It, it really would be back to medieval times without oil. It really would. Even to make penicillin, you need an oil derivative in part of the process. You know, so it's saying do away and stop oil. I'm very proud I had a stop oil character arrested. By the way, that's another story. For Tried to hit you, right? Pardon? Tried to hit you. No, well, he, he didn't. He, he picked up a table, or you know, one of and these stressful tables, and threw it in the air. It was fully loaded, uh, without any concern for anyone. And he was the one who painted the painting, I understand, in, in London. Anyway, uh, he got um, 10 months suspended, a criminal um, record, and 100 quid fine. So he can't do any other stop old stuff unless he's very careful because he gets done for both and he goes mm -hmm. to jail. So um, I won't tolerate people doing this. I, I'm totally non-violent. I'm happy to debate with anybody, you know, openly, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what, what, they're good, what they're doing is using this control mechanism. So the 15-minute city means that instead of a, you divide a city like a cake into slices, yep. yeah, and you want to go, this grandmother, and it's a natural case, wants to go three miles to pick up a granddaughter from home, take her to school, later on in the day, go to pick her up from school, take her home. Family arrangement happens millions of times in Britain. We all cooperate together in the family like after children. Yes? Yep. Now, under the new Oxford scheme, would have to this is Oxford's the troll city that they're using the for this. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 this would be everywhere, though, if they got away. So on the 15-minute city, if anyone leaves home with a car out their sector more than 100 times a year, there's a £100 fine. So you've got to learn to work from home, which is very difficult for an electrician. But don't worry, under their plans, everything you need inside that sector will be there. So apparently the British Museum will be there. Everything will have a hockey ring, a hockey stake you know, thing. Every, yeah. Everyone will have a tempo Tempo, bowling alley, whatever you call them. Everyone will have all these things, all within 15 minutes. It's basically what they're saying. And, and this, is, this has been trialled in Oxford, but there's dozens of cities that have signed up already. 100, 100 cities that have signed up mm. for these 15-minute cities. So their idea is that everything the human will, everything the people in that 
15 minute zone will need is going to be within 15 minutes. Mm. And the reason they're justifying that is to save CO2. the planet. Mm. CO2. Correct. To stop CO2. Correct. Is that the reason they're trying to do this? Or is this just total control over... It's total control. Uh, the reason is total control. The t- control comes in every And they form. make, if you want to leave the 15 minute city, you pay a hundred pound fine. Mm. In Wales, in Wales, our children in school are being fed insects now. Yes? In, 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 and so on. It's, they're going to control what you eat. They control, you know, how much meat you can buy or not buy. Uh, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's complete control by using the CO2 excuse of your entire life. You're slightly worse off, I think, than a battery chicken, actually, under this. And it can't work. It can't work. And on top of this, they've got a scheme called green energy, which is totally ungreen. <laughs> you couldn't get less green, which is so costly, and they lie to you. They say it's cheap green energy. It isn't. Now, let me explain something. Our society evolved. If you go back hundreds of years in medieval times, we had a village, and in that village you had specialisation. You had a blacksmith. So he was the one who did that. Not everyone could do that. You had a baker, maybe, and he could do that. But as we built up and became more sophisticated in society, our specialisations are wider. So you don't have an aeroplane built in every village. You don't have a car bill. And so the whole idea is this specialisation, which is why we're so wealthy as, as, a, as countries now mm. in the Western societies compared to what we were hundreds of years ago. And the engine for that is, is fossil fuel. And now, if you go back to what we call the Leadites in Lancashire, where they found they could power the machines by steam and one person could do the job of 50, they, the Leadites objected to that and burnt machines and everything. They were wrong because efficiency, that's what robots can do. Efficiency means there's more money for everyone. And all you have to do as society is understand how that's distributed. It isn't doing away with the job as such. It's actually doing one person can now do the job of 50, which means that a lot of people can have a lot more of that product. It's cheaper product. So everyone can have it. Yes. When I was a kid, a car was an undreamt of thing. No one had a car, yeah? And uh, that's 1940s, 1945, so I was conscious of it by 1950. The only person that had a car in the whole area was the doctor, yeah? But now, to, now these days, it's normal to have a car or two cars. Mm. So that's caused by specialised... It's the opposite. It's actually the most... It's extreme communism is the only way to describe it. And they can't face up to the debate. So they don't allow the debate. So they class me, I, 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 they class me as a holocaust, holocaust, they use a word like holocaust denier, I'm classed as a climate denier, right? It's them that are denying the climate. I'm saying there was a medieval warm period, a Roman warm period, there was a little ice age, right? They're saying there wasn't all these things really, yes? They have emails between them, let's get rid of the medieval warm period. That's not a scientist, that's someone with an agenda, yeah? And so it's all about control and um, net zero, it's not possible. It's just not possible. What does net zero mean? It means no. It means on balance, the whole society does not will will, uh, will not produce any excess CO two at all. Because we've so, got a net zero target by two thousand fifty. Yeah, everyone has. Yeah, everyone, all of Europe. Uh, oh, well, not everyone. No, uh, I know. China, so. India. No. Oh no, no. Plus these no. countries don't have to hit the net zero. No, I mean Western, Western, yeah, yeah. Western countries with all these stupid leaders have. The, the, the idea of net zero is we're carbon neutral by 2050. So uh, I'll give you a great scheme. Here's a great scheme. Let's have, let's burn trees, which when you burn a tree, it gives off a lot of CO2, yeah? So what we do, but trees grow, and when they're growing, they absorb CO2. 
So in natural, the natural course of events in a forest, a tree will grow. It'll absorb CO2. One day it has to die. I've got, I've got news for you. Everything has to die eventually. Every living thing has to die. And normally they die with a fire, by the way, naturally, forests. But they die. So it goes, it's neutral. So what we do is we have a coal power station called Drax in the northeast. Yes? A coal power station called Drax. And that power station burns 37,000 tonnes of wood pellets a day. And those pellets come from America and Canada. So they go over there and, and, and you actually have huge machines, as big as this house sort of thing. Huge machines cutting the trees down, moving all this. You have, you have office buildings to manage all the workers and everything. All that gets taken by huge trucks to a pelletizing plant where you use heat, fossil fuel heat, and things and chop them up into little pellets, make the pellets. You put them on a train, chug, 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 chug across America, fossil fuel again. Uh, uh, and then you get to the boat. I don't know if people know this, but boats used to run them, they use very cheap, heavy, treacle-like diesel. To start them, they use diesel we would know, yeah? But once they're going, they use really cheap, dirty diesel. So that goes all the way across the Atlantic, around the northeast, goes on another train, chug, 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 to the, to the plant, and they burn it, yeah? Now, there used to be the coal... Now, you need a lot more wood, you need twice as much wood as you need coal, because it's less dense. So the same energy, you need twice as much, yes? So everything is doubled anyway on all that. All that. The coal was two miles away, would come by train into the plant and be burnt. That was it, yeah? Now we've got all this going on, and it doesn't make sense. 500 scientists, when this was going on, wrote to the government and said, you know, even on the alarmist side, this is stupid. But no, we burn 37,000 tonnes a day. Now, now, this week, this week, they're running out, in next, I think in the next year or so, they're running out of their subsidy, because we subsidise this plant by almost 700 million pounds a year. So you see, there's a tax we're paying, yeah, that you don't see on the green bill. It's a tax, so you're paying it. And they've also um, now got a new two billion, that's 2,000 million pound scheme, to bury the CO2. So the idea is where we've taken stuff out the ground, like coal or whatever it is, or oil, we've now put the CO2 back and bury it, because it's, it's toxic, the CO2, which it isn't, right? So Is this just another tax? Another, well, it's two billion pound added. But let's actually go, I'll come, I'll come to Wales. In South Wales, um, uh, uh, um, Talbot Steelworks, Port Talbot Steelworks, was operating two blast furnaces making high quality steel. That steel can be used for structure, buildings, bridges, railways, name it, structural steel. Well, let's give you 500 million, change them over to electric furnaces, but they can't produce structural steel. They can just melt scrap and boot low quality steel. Yes? And by the way, we'll, we'll give you 500 million and you're going to have to sack 3,000 people. The government are paying to sack 3,000 people, which will devastate maybe 10,000 people in that area. Lots of businesses are going to close. If that income goes, bang, you with me? Yeah. So that we can increase CO2 by it being made in China, yeah, in a much lower level of pollution standards, because we have high pollution standards, yeah. transshipped all across the world to us. You couldn't make this up. And I, I made a video, uh, it's a video just out this morning actually, and, and, and what, what it says, it mentions, it mentions a number of stupid things. But it, 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 how can anyone, I said children could run it better, but then I realised I'm insulting children. I mean, you can't insult our politicians enough for their lack of understanding. You know, my politicians... Do you think it's a lack of understanding? Or no, no, it isn't. Being done? No, it's... it's 
let's take the, the recent news on, the big news at the moment is Mr. Bates against the post office. Yeah, it's almost the same, right? Um, and Mr. Bates against, uh, uh, against the post office. Um, those ministers just ignored and ignored and ignored. And yet today, every single member of parliament is there, crammed in. They've had to let the um, um, legislation go on migrants for the moment. It has to be delayed a week now because everyone wants to put this right for these poor victims of the post office, 700 and odd victims. Everyone wants to put it right. But these people turned it down. They didn't right. care about Putin. They didn't boy, care. Then. Only when the people turn, only when the people understood because of a television series. Right? Andrew Bridgen, for example, did care. Andrew Bridgen he was, was a man. He years. did care. He fought it for years. Yes. And go nowhere. I'm fighting my MP now who won't divide. You know, I'm my MP. I can prove that the entire industry of solar and wind is lying about how many homes they supply. Because when they say they supply 10,000 homes, they really mean 2,000. Because they say 10,000 homes according to the average home. The average home is 80% gas, 20% electric. So all they're supplying is the 20. But the people don't know that. So they think, oh no, they can supply a million homes now. They can supply this. No, they can't. Right? So I say to my MP, again. I say to my MP, and this MP I've now is in a chapter in the book. <coughs> His picture's in a chapter of the book. The man who can't divide, or he won't divide. Right? Actually, man who won't divide is more truthful. You have to divide the output of the power of the wind or solar farm by, by the number of houses to see how much power, yeah, per house. Yep. Compare that to the average house, you get 20%. Yeah, that's it. So the only science involved in this is division one number by another. So when I do this in an email to him to say, you know, the public should be aware of this, he writes back one line and says, I don't accept your conspiracy theory. How to so, win with that? I had his image. I had his image in, in the in the Parliament. In, Let's put his I went, image in this, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll put his image. His, and name his phone is number. Simon Hart. Simon Hart. And he is. Simon Hart is a minister. He's the chief whip. So he whips all the people on policy. He makes all the Tories try to vote that way. Yeah. And, and he won't accept it. He won't. And so he's a man. So I had that simple division is a conspiracy. I had a huge stage. I had a huge stage when I went to um, uh, Transmedia. Romania. 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 Yeah. I had a huge stage. And I had his image there about 20 feet high. And that's coming into a chapter in a book, The Man Who Won't Divide. And I will be exposing it on television as soon as I can. That's what you're doing now. You, you do a regular slot on GB News. Uh, at the moment, I'm doing a regular spot on GB News. All about this. And I have to say, GB News are very good. Uh, um, and I, I get on very well with Nana Akua, who... I love who, her. Uh, um, pardon? She's good. Yeah, she is. And, and I get on very well with her. The problem is I've only got six, seven minutes, maybe ten minutes last week, where it's so little, it's, uh, I can't really get a proper story across. And so I'm campaigning. But I met, I won't name them, but I met people I respect, uh, presenters I respect. How do we get the public interest in this net zero? Well, the, I, um, and, and the fraud that's going on, if, if we can call it a fraud. And, ha and also, what's currently happening with the farming protests in Holland? Yeah, okay. Can you explain that? Yeah. There's no difference between me and you on this. I, I just tell you something first. On the, on the 50 minute city, I went to Swansea and I was in an arena, like a stone arena, like a Roman thing with steps. And the march was coming toward, you know, it was half, a, half an hour away, so I should sit there by myself. An Antifa found me. And they surrounded me, about 30 or 40 Antifa. Nazi, 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 Anthony. You know, and hold on. I'm on climate change, yeah? And so. And, and everyone's so, a Nazi. Everyone disagree with you, they're a Nazi. I, I, I'm a Nazi, yeah. <laughs> And um, so, and the police were there waiting for the march, 
So they were about 200 yards away and they just slowly marched over and came. Antifa are hired, these groups are hired in order to I know intimidate oh, I know. people into I know. silence. I know. Anyone who goes against the mainstream I know. narrative. I know. The narrative I know. the government are pushing on yeah. us, so, get in the way, you're coming under attack. So I think GB News, I'm the only voice on the entire British radio or TV media that's giving my argument that the whole CO2 thing is a sham. The whole CO2 argument is a sham. I'm the only voice. And GB News are to be congratulated for, for allowing that. my voice on. I want to expand that voice because I want to explain more, right? which I can't do because I'm against someone who, who doesn't understand climate at all, actually. And last week, I'll put it your story. Before the other show was starting, I've got my documents and I've got slides I've given to them. He's got three or four slides he's given to them. So I knew what he was going to do. So I knew what he was going to do. For the first time, he said he was going to provide evidence. Yeah? And this is in the 10th time we've met. First time evidence. And I said to my wife the night before, that's the graph he's going to show me, which is a climate temperature graph. Yeah. And so when we're there, I said, oh, by the way, hey, I've got that graph, because the one you've just presented, it's there. He said, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Because everything graph I give him is wrong. I said, you just said your own graph's wrong. And he said, my graph comes from six sources. I said, this is the graph, there's the six sources. It's identical, mm. right? And, oh, oh, I said, everything I give him. So I give him a, 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 a chart, just a fact. That's wrong, you conspiracy theorist. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I give him a chart of the ice extent, the Arctic ice extent, which is uh, on the 27th of December was the highest. That's when I last took it. With, uh, I have a bloke who helps me with this, uh, helps go through the data. And it was the highest it's been since 2009, right? And it's not melting every day like they say. It's the highest it's been since 2009. That's not me. That's satellites measuring it from the US Centre for measuring it, yeah? And he says, it's a conspiracy. I'm delusional. But he doesn't give me anything back. But that's how they got around COVID. It's how they've got around him. It's all a conspiracy. Open border, rep, uh, the great yes. replacement theory. It's all a conspiracy. Yes, it is, I'm afraid. So the way, they, the way they silenced the debate, hmm? vaccines. I had a friend who was telling me about the COVID conspiracy early on. And I said, you're wrong, you're wrong. And we, she ceased to be a bit of a friend, actually, because I thought she was wrong. When I found out she was right, I phoned her up and said, you've been right all along. <laughs> and I've been wrong, right? And um, and when I was in, uh, well, that takes that's good that because pe most people still who know now that they're double jabbed, they're triple jabbed, and they're still trying to argue it out of shame, out of embarrassment. The the Romania talk was forty scientists, forty of us. I was only doing climate change. I was the only one in climate. It was all about COVID basically. Yeah. And and I had a scientist there, uh, and he said to me the night before my I was on day two, and and he'd, he'd finished day one. He did a brilliant brilliant talk. And he didn't go into the details. He just looked at excess deaths for any reason. Excess deaths. Any reason. Yeah. And, and I walked up to him afterwards and I said, do you know Andrew Bridge? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm helping him. So I said, great. And, and he said, but I'm worried about your talk tomorrow. And he said, what's the basis? And I said, the basis of it is to do the radiation, radiation transfer model. And he said, thank God, thank God you understand. I said, yeah. And, um, and, and he, he then... Do you know the name of this gentleman? I forgot the name, but I'll, I'll happily put it underneath yeah. now. We'll put it underneath now. And he, he's a famous um, scientist uh, who speaks the truth. No, that's not good. And um, uh, and the next day when I gave my talk, he was standing, uh, giving me standing ovation, the blinging lot. Yeah, he's yeah. been waiting for someone to come and on he, the back he then, said, he then said to the organisers, how did you find him? How did you find him? In the taxi, he was with him in the taxi because we had taken back in groups to the hotel. And he said, how did you find him and all that? You know, because he, he's the one who really understands it. And um, so I was pleased with that, you know, and that's coming out of the book. Um, but my, you know, I'm going to make a video of what my Slovenia thing should have been because it's highly, that's the only one I've ever prepared because I don't have scripts for any of my videos. 
I, I just go on and talk. Mm. I'll look it up and then I'll just repeat the sound or repeat the shot. Mm. But, but I'll just talk, I don't script it. Okay. What can, um, with climate change, what's, what, what is the future few years look like in Europe with what they're attempting to do? What do you think? Well, the big thing is we're now entering a cooling period. The, the, the oceans... So the earth's not getting hot? Pardon? So the earth's not... No, no, it's not going to get hot now. They keep telling us that. Uh, if you... Uh, weather, let's talk about weather. Weather is about difference. So if the pressure there is the same as the pressure there, there's no wind, there's no real weather. Yes? Yeah. If the pressure is different, there's weather. You understand that? Yeah. The North Atlantic Decadal Oscillation. That sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds the North, North Atlantic Decadal Oscillation. It's, it's been warm. It's been warm for a number of years, since about 1995. It's now cooling down, yes, and that's entering, so that's cooling. The Enzo, which is the Pacific one, is cooling, right? Now, if you have a hot, hotter north in the Atlantic, and it's compared to the tropical temperature, the difference is less. If you have less difference, you have less frequent weather, less, less extreme weather. So we've been having less extreme weather for a long time now. Not more. And what shatters people what shattered my opponent on GB News was I went to the, his data, I went to his science and said, well, according to the science, there's no evidence whatsoever increased droughts. What? No? Who says that? The IPCC or the controlling body in the UN? Yeah, the IPCC scientists say that. Oh, there's no more floods, not going to them. Oh, there's no more fire weather for forests. No, no. I went through the list and it's there. That can't be true, it can't be true. You're cherry picking. No, I'm not. So I just read out last Saturday, Met Office, the storms of 1980s and 1990s were far worse than we've had in the last 20 years. I went to, I went to Dresden for a demonstration and on the building, on one of the buildings, they mark all the floods. Yeah. Um, and, it, and the German fellow said, just look yeah, <laughs> where the highest, and they're all historical. <laughs> so he just looked at it, went up, he goes, that is climate change, as simple as that. Correct. It's there for you to see. I know. Um, floods are complicated because people concrete over catchments and do all sorts of things. Mm. Droughts are simple, but the worst drought in Britain was 1776. And, um, and if you take the next one, it was like 1802 or something. And they're all in the 1700s, yeah. the worst ones. And, uh, and I'm into that, of course. That was, that was my job. Yeah, you know? And, and um, so they don't understand. The colder the weather, the more likely you are to have a drought. A very dry place, there's a shock. Uh, do you know one of the driest places on Earth is the Antarctic and the South Pole? Yeah because everything's frozen, because it can't have water vapour in the air. It freezes, okay. yes? Yeah. So the air is very dry, yes? When you've got dry air, you, get, you, you actually can have more droughts. And the 1976 drought, which is the biggest drought in my lifetime, um, was in the middle of the Ice Age coming scare, the 70s. I explained that in the latest video. But um, my job uh, of video, um, my job generally, is to improve the world for my grandkids. I'm being selfish. And my job there is to explain in ordinary, to ordinary people, ordinary sense, not get too complicated, um, to explain um, climate, the climate con, and, and to explain how they're being damaged and how billions are being given away. Now, if we treble, they're just going to award a 30 gigawatt um, wind farm in the North Sea. That trebles, it's going to be enormous. Overnight, we have to pay wind farms not to give us energy because we contract to give anything they can produce, we'll take. Overnight, we don't need it. Already, we don't need it. Three wind farms in Scotland, almost 50% of the time, paid not to give us the energy. How do I come to that? A committee of MPs did that, not me. 
So all the time when I do these things, I back it up with my source and my evidence. And that's critical. I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist as such. Like on the COVID, I resisted it until the evidence came. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm a normal bloke uh, in, in many, many ways. I just, a simple guy who wants to try to put the world a bit better before I kick the bucket. I've probably got about 11 years left if I'm lucky. If I make it to 90, yeah, I'm 79 this month. If I make it to 90, if I, what's going to be great is I'll be able to see the cold coming. You know what they're going to do? They're going to say the cold has been caused by global warming. They are. They're going to do that. I know they are. And, it, and if you've got another 11 years left, because I know you're very passionate about this issue. In fact, you're probably becoming one of the most vocal voices in the UK on this issue. Mm. Are you going to continue fighting this battle? All the time. I know you've made lots of small videos. We've done some today as well. But I know you've made lots of small, five, six, seven, covering all of these issues. Where can people watch them? They can go to uh, it's my YouTube channel. Yeah. And YouTube don't allow it. I mean, uh, you know. At the uh, minute, until you get big enough, well, yeah. I believe, <laughs> and then you'll be gone. <laughs> okay, I've got 103 videos on there at the moment. Uh, about 90 of them. Some of them early on to do with the sailing, actually. About 90-odd on climate. And you go to... Um, climate realism. You go you, YouTube. We'll put the link here. Yeah. But uh, but it's YouTube channel. It's climate realism by Paul Burgess. That's my channel. Yeah. Climate realism by Paul Burgess. I want to say something else. I I I, I get paid um, 150 pounds a time to go on GB News, right? Mm -hmm. And 40 pound for a for a Zoom thing. Now I don't cover all my expenses, right? So I operated all this. I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm way down on costs on money. Can we just I, explain, when you go to watch GB News, how long of a journey is that? I leave, I get up at 7 and I get back in 11 at night. I get 7 a.m. to 11 or seven at night. Slot. I travel 600 miles. For a 6 or 7 minute slot. For a 6 or 7 minute slot. Because I'm the only voice. To me, it's like a little, and this, I, I thank Nana Rakua. Pardon? It's important. It's important. I've, my wife says, you're mad. Uh, and she worked out, I think, I'm getting, travelling 6 miles for every second. <laughs> That's the wife trying to make a point. Uh, <laughs> wives always think you're mad. Yeah. Wives always think you're mad. I know. And um, so, yeah, that's what I do. But it's a hole for me. It's it's a, and and not only that. So far, I won't be able to keep it up because it's growing like this. But so far, I answer every comment on there. That's hard to do. Yeah. And uh, and I try to answer every comment. And what I'm really pleased about, of course, 99% of the comments, and I'm over 99% of the comments, support me on the GB News follow-up. Yeah. And sometimes I'm on the train. Last week I was on the train coming back, which is, you know, I'm, after I leave the studio, I've got six hours because I've got a, a car trip as well. And I'm on the train, and it comes up. They've done the clip. as a clip, you know. And I've got comments there. And I had 400 comments before I got off the train on, on, on what they did, you know. But the next day I take it, and to satisfy my, myself, I give the full story. So while I wasn't able to show something or something, I explain it. Okay, yes. that's good. Uh, and so the next day, the follow-up on, which is on my channel. But yesterday, yesterday when I did that video, it was a big video, it's 50 minutes, it's a big video. I did, did it because some of it links in to what I wanted to get the message across on, is we're entering a cool period. Mm. And um, the natural cycles of the sun, the sun, the sun, in last October, the sun changed its magnetic poles. It does it every 11 years. And um, that is the highest uh, amount of energy coming from the sun, if you like. That's the best way to put it. But it dies down, dies down. So we've now ed heading towards a minimum. But worse than that, over the cycle there, there are bigger cycles. So the cycles have been reducing in size. Mm. 
all the time. So that's what happened with the um, uh, uh, minimum and the under minimum in the, in the Little Ice Age. We had very low sunspot activity. We've got sunspot activity going back hundreds of years because people counted the sunspots and kept a record. And so we actually got a very good index of solar activity. And, um, and the solar activity controls clouds very much. And clouds are a huge factor. The climate models miss out. But one of the best, the best compliment I ever had was when I did one of my first videos, a, a, a lady I know phoned me up and said, my 11-year-old came home from school, watched it, and said, we're not taught that at school. No, they're not. They brainwash children at school now. All the way. About climate change. About climate change. That's all, oh, that's all they all, the, you see all the kids have got on the demonstrations. Yes. They're, they're sticking their head that literally these kids are thinking the planet's about Earth. Uh, the planet's about to end. Greta was coming to Bristol, my daughter. Uh, my grand, I have a granddaughter there. And my granddaughter wants to go and to, to the Greta thing. They give them a day off school. I mean, somehow, for this alarmism, you get a day off school. And she wanted to go. And so my, my daughter said to her, tell me what it's about and I'll let you go. And she couldn't say what it was about, so she didn't go. So they're really funny. Um, it's no, a new thing to be in with. Yeah, but what a thing to do, to have a child. But I don't, I don't really realise this, but Greta's grandfather started the CO2 scare, or maybe a great-grandfather, in well, the 1800s. I didn't know that. No. Well, no. But to him, it was good at the time, because extra CO2 would be good. But um, he started it, and, and also... Um, that was a put-up job outside the school. That was all done by a person who managed publicity. She's yeah. had a publicist from day the whole one. Oh, time, yeah. Oh, it's all planned. All planned, yeah. yeah for um, sympathy. But you can meet you meet the Pope, you meet the UN thing, you meet the government ministers. Everyone wants to get in with Greta. And you know, and this, I, I, I shame you. I shame you, politicians, for doing that. I shame you for abusing the child by doing that. Abusing an autistic child. Uh, yeah, it's abuse. It really is. And, and there's no science behind her, you know. But there's then there's no science behind the UN. The, the alarmist, the scientists, there's some good science comes out from the alarmists, don't get me wrong, but they don't, what they do is they have 6,000 pages of science and then they have the summary for policymakers in the UN every year, every COP meeting. And that's written by uh, all the hundreds of delegates from all the different countries, one delegate each, right? And they go through every sentence, a green and red, and get, get passionate green, they all have to agree. And then they go against the science. So they, 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 or they find the science that fits their narrative. Or they even tell the science to change itself. Yeah. Some refuse and leave. Yeah. So you've got so many stories like this. Um, but now you've got, I'm a member now of Sintel, Clintel, sorry, which is based in Amsterdam. And, um, and that's 1850 scientists and specialists who are all against it. You've got last year, the 2022 um, prize, uh, Nobel Prize for physics, run by... Um, uh, John Morder, I think, um, he wins. And immediately you do that, you're famous, right, in physics. And so lots of people want to employ you to give a speech. You make a lot of money. So the IMF say, right, we got a speech. We, we want you to do a speech on climate models. Great, he says, right? He comes so, out and rubbishes it. No, no. So he goes and does one in Korea. The first one was Korea. So he stands up in Korea and says, climate models are absolutely rubbish. And they're, they're disjoint science. They're doing harm to science. They don't know what they're talking about, basically. Bang, bang. So straight away, the IMF say, oh, we're cancelling, <laughs> cancelling your talk. Because <laughs> they can't allow that, can they? No, no. Now, but let me explain something. Right? That's important. The IMF won't lend money to developing countries in Africa or anywhere else for fossil fuel development. They won't do it. So we're impoverishing third world countries with it. Forcing our, forcing our agendas Forcing our agendas onto them, right? And it's ridiculous. 
It is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and it's, it's they're damaging people here. They, they're taking money in the billions. It's, I costed a battery. We had nine days in 2018, one of my famous videos, without wind. You'd have to have a battery costing three and a half trillion pounds right trillion pounds you'd have to replace every 10 or 12 years it's totally unaffordable but it, it would cost more than that because if we put that on demand on the market it would put the price up to maybe eight trillion because we haven't got the minerals all the copper mines in the world they chose the easy copper mines the rich ones first and as you go over time weaker and weaker and weaker and now now if you start to force a lot more copper so what they're trying to change over from is liquid if you like oil over to hard minerals in terms of energy and so on and doing that is impossible. The, uh, you could not change all the light vans and cars in, in UK over to electric, over to electric, um, with, with, uh, 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 the world can't supply that. Yeah, and the on the top of that, they're not planning to provide the electricity for it. No, there's not, <laughs> there's, enough, there's not enough electricity. They're not planning to provide the electricity to do all this. And we won't need as many cars because we'll be walking around our 15 If you're fitting a heat pump and you've already got radiators in your house, forget it because you need 220% more radiators, more than double the radiators to fit in to get the same amount of heat out. But then you'll be also locked into high electricity prices. Yes? And so there's a gradual revolt coming. I mean, everything's collapsing on net zero around the world. Uh, uh, Germany's in serious trouble. The farmers, the farmers, they've got to supply, they've got to restrict food because food gives off CO2, you know, basically, yes? Yes, so they get rid of uh, the farms and then they fertilizer. control the market. Yeah. Uh, 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 and so all the farmers have to stop. And, and what really gets to me is, is the hypocrisy of what they're doing. Hundreds, uh, in, in, when I was in Edinburgh, COP, over 400 jets. They had to open up other airports for the jets, the private jets. You know, I, I mean, the hypocrisy of it gets to me. And yeah, a lot of people are brainwashed with it. My opponent, frankly, uh, he's an okay guy, but uh, on my GB News every Saturday, it's my opponent's brainwashed with this. He never gives me evidence back. And when he did last week, I already knew it. He really got him upset that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I said on my video yesterday, which has just come out, I said, I know something he doesn't know, which is what? I know that he doesn't know enough to know what he doesn't know. <laughs> so it's easy for me. So I'm not particularly clever on this, honestly. You know, just, just, they, they, they will sometimes wrap you up with about 20 references and things, you know, 20 papers, mm. the opponents, and try to do it that way. You have to look through it and look to the simplicity of this. It is really simple. It's a huge con. It will fail. It'll fail because the public won't put up with it. Well, that's the job is to, to get the public to understand it. So yes. We could sit here and talk for 10 hours. Correct. I'm, um, Correct. I'm grateful people know where to go to listen to you. Yeah. And as I said, more than just the climate change guy, Paul. Maybe a lot more. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for your time. If you're just watching this, if it's your first podcast you've watched, I've already done another 40. Please like, subscribe, share them. We have different interesting guests each week hearing their stories. A lot of the time it's the stories that the mainstream or the, the, the people in control, the establishment, don't want you to hear. So they're important work. I thank you for following me. I thank you for your support. Thank you. Carry on watching for more interesting guests. I'll talk to anyone, I'll debate anyone, I'll hear anyone's story. If you want to help me along that way, it's not free, I need your support. If you can support my family, that gives me my peace of mind. It means I can continue to do the work I do. You can do so at www.supporttommy.com. I appreciate every bit of support 
as do my children. Gives me the ability to fly them out here to see me so I can stay in constant contact with them. I'm de-platformed and I'm censored, so I need you. I need you to share this content. Make sure you stay tuned for upcoming weekly guests. Interesting guests, exciting guests. I'm Tom Robson and this has been my podcast, Silence.